taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, in Ronan, Montana, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, as we begin with the Word of the Lord. And we start off in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10. through 10. He says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome everyone, and thank you for thank you so much for tuning in, uh, engaging with us. Um, we've we've been uh, getting uh, good uh, correspondence back and forth. Uh, as much as we do get it, we we enjoy um, enjoy the conversations and we enjoy the time to help minister to that. Uh, today we're having to redirect our podcast, and Brian and I are going to have to shoot from the hip with this one. Um, it's been one that we've actually had kind of on backup and and some ideas and thoughts about for, for quite some time, and we were going to actually talk about our subject today. Um, here actually sooner than later uh but now we've got to do it today instead of later <laughs> so <laughs> but uh yeah we had uh, an interview scheduled for uh uh dr michael heiser um uh as uh, as he had to cancel today because of uh uh his his medical condition um that he's got going right now and he's having to seek some treatments and uh he just wasn't uh wasn't strong enough to be able to uh, proceed on. So I, I, I just ask that everybody um, that is part of this audience, um, whether you agree with him or not, um, lift him up in prayer. He's a he's a brother in Christ. He's a he's a leader. He's a scholar. Uh, wonderful man. Um, uh, just just pray for him and lift him up. Pray for his family. Pray for uh, the ministry. Pray pray for his students. All those uh, that'll be involved with the. Uh, everything that he's doing right now. So um, let's go ahead and welcome on Brian, and we'll get right after it. Hello, Brian. Hey, Curtis, and thank you for those those uh, those good words that you mentioned. Uh, just just to add one one brief thing, I was talking with my dissertation chair today, Dr. Leo Purser, and he knows uh, Dr. Heiser very well. And um, apparently, Dr. Heiser and Gary Yates, who's a professor of Old Testament at, at Liberty, are really good friends. And he said that uh, for for Mike to have to cancel uh, a, a podcast uh, speaks volumes as to how bad he must be feeling because he loves speaking about the Word of God. He loves speaking about these theological issues, especially to a popular audience. And so, uh, as you as you said, to, uh, to to go along with what you said, we definitely need to remember Dr. Heiser in our thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're going to kick open the hornet's nest. Um <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we'll see what kind of comes out after this one. Um, Might as well but, do it right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Get the hornet spray out is, and ready to kick right. ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, divorce and remarriage um, today, and that's. Uh, going to be our subject and our topic and our heading for today and uh so we'll get after it is there anything you kind of want to add in before we start in 
Yeah, yeah. First, well, a couple of things. One is uh, this: this was a discussion I was kind of reeled into on on Facebook. I very rarely ever engage in, in debates or conversation on uh, on uh, on Facebook because there's very little fruit to be had. But th- there were the the conversation in some for some parties became very hostile um, towards those who have been divorced and remarried and and um, and there were some who I who seemed appeared as if they were hurt online because of the conversation um, and really fired back on all cylinders second the th- next thing I want to say is obviously divorce is never something we should ever uh, desire it's not something we should pursue by by no means are we advocating that that a person, get divorced as we go through this material, but we do need to understand uh, the biblical paradigms uh, for things that happen, because let's be honest, life happens. It's a lot of times messy uh, because of our sinful nature. You know, things happen. We, we get in our way, and, our, <laughs> and, and, and bad things happen. Uh, sometimes people get married for the wrong reasons. Sometimes there are, are abusive relationships, and we need to we need to have grace as we talk to individuals. We need to understand that the only unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which, in my interpretation, means the rejection of Christ unto death. All other sin can be forgiven. Only that one is unforgivable. Hmm. Yeah. Well, all right. So let's get into the first question here. So does the Bible permit divorce? And if so, uh, what circumstances allow divorce to happen? Okay. So, yeah, let's let's hit the ground running on this. Uh, yeah. Now, now let's let's preface this by saying that the Bible. This, this is like this is like a fast train that we just jumped on. Yeah. and we don't have an idea which direction we're going. Amtrak full steam ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for sure, th- th- there's a big difference in the word. Notice we use the word permit. It doesn't say it commands, but it says it permits. In certain circumstances, it, it may be. Uh, 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 the only option that's that's necessary uh, or available. So in certain areas, in certain cases, yes, the Bible does uh, permit divorce in certain circumstances. So far as I can tell, there are four main areas. Now, one is the biggest area. Uh, first and foremost, the most prominent and most widely accepted um, instance uh, for permissive case for divorce is found in sexual sins. We're going to talk about this a little bit more detail as we move along. But uh, Jesus, this is found in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19. Uh, so so sexual immorality is a cause, uh, a permission to allow divorce to happen. Uh, the, you know, And so another reason for divorce, a second reason is found in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 through 16 uh, where Paul talks about abandonment uh, where if you are a believer and you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves on account of your religion then in such case the believer is freed from the responsibilities freed from the bonds uh, so they had been abandoned uh, the love had been lost and so um, 
And so that's another biblical ground for divorce. The third area, uh, this doesn't have as much of a specific biblical ground, but I think you can find overall biblical ground for this case. And here we're talking about abuse. Uh, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination should we ever think that God expects a woman or a man to stay in a relationship where one or the other is being battered um, mentally or physically. Um, there are some examples we can find. Uh, some people use uh, Matthew 19.8, talking about um, uh, ju- abuse as a justifiable means for divorce, where he talks about uh, the hardness of your hearts and how this might be, might talk about uh, the, the hardness of the hearts talking about abuse in an indirect means. Could be. Another case we do find, uh, more specifically, is where Abraham divorced Hagar due to Hagar's verbal abuse towards Sarah. Now, Sarah and Hagar, of course, here again, we have to understand uh, this this is a uh, not a singular marriage. He is uh, married to women, and I think this is a, a good case to show why that never works. Uh, <laughs> so, Polygamy does not work, and so this is a this is a evidence of that. But anyhow, there was uh, abuse going on between Hagar and Sarah, and because of that, uh, Abraham divorced Hagar in that sense. So, uh, but overall, I think we can build an overall case when we look at the moral nature of God, how He wants the the best for us, how throughout the law He's building a case to protect the innocent person, and so in such a case. I don't think by any means can we ever say that God expects a person to stay in an environment where they are uh, physically um, threatened. Uh, And then fourth, uh, a fourth reason is actually found in some further research, a religious incompatibility. Uh, This is comparable to what you find in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. In fact, this may be where he got that from. Uh, this is found in Ezra 10, 10 through 11 and Nehemiah 10, 30, uh, where uh, individuals had uh, married in, uh, others who were not of the tribe of Israel. Uh, in fact, they had a different religion. This was causing problems, numerous problems uh, in, the, in the camp. And so in that case, divorce was permitted. So these are the four main areas that I found where I think we can say that, uh, uh, that divorce is permissible. And number four, I'm going to go backwards real quick on this. On number four, um, that was due to the, the God establishing something new in in the hearts of the uh, hearts of His people, mm. and by by doing what what they were doing, it was going to pull them away almost immediately. Yeah. Um, second, and then number three, when you're talking about abuse. Obviously, it's the it's the case where it's already been worked through. There's been counseling. There's been things going on. There's been st- stuff that's that's allowed the people to to, and it still continues. Am I right? Yeah, you know. But I would say first and foremost here that if a especially a woman finds herself and her children in in a case where they are being physically abused. They need to immediately, immediately get out of the situation. I'm not saying necessarily immediately divorce right. the person, but they need to immediately right. get in a safe location. Having spoken right. with people who had been in abusive relationships, 
Um, I'm not saying that counseling couldn't happen and the person couldn't change, you know, because God can change the hearts and minds of individuals. Right. But that would be something that would have to be closely monitored, because it. Because let's be honest. When we're talking about individuals who have these power trips and are bent on, um, I'm just going to use the term. It's not probably a good term to use, but if a person's hell bent on on hurting another individual, they're they're going to do it regardless of, of how much counsel they receive. Um, sometimes individuals can manipulate to and make it seem as if everything is okay, and them not change so i think especially in the case of physical abuse the there needs to be first of all the person needs to leave find a good safe place to reside and before before that person enters especially given the the, their children's safety as well before they re-enter the home they need to really be sure that a transformation has taken place. So I would, I would say there that, yes, there needs to be counsel, but if a person's life in the life of their children, if, if they're being threatened, they need to immediately find another location to reside until those issues are worked out. But now let me, let me just say in full disclosure, sometimes you know couples can get in spats. It may be... Um, it may be that, that there's that they just get angry with one another. Here, I'm, I have more in mind of a of a physical abuse that's going on uh, that is of a such a degree that a person's life is in danger. Uh, I, I think in that case, they need to immediately find a safe place, and there are there is help out there for individuals who are caught in said situations. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So uh, let's go to the second question. The primary focus of divorce and remarriage is found in Jesus' teachings on this on the issue. What was the Old Testament passage at the center of debate, and what were the circumstances behind the passage? Okay, so here we go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This becomes a, a subject of debate. It always goes to Deuteronomy. Yeah. <laughs> Everything does. <laughs> it seems like it does. De- Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 says this, and I'm reading from the CSB. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Now, this is the key phrase, something indecent about her. He may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she's been defiled, because that would be detestable in the Lord. Okay, You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Okay, so the key to this passage is found in the phrase displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. The question that surrounded the rabbinical community, especially in Jesus' day, is what constituted indecency. And we'll get to that debate a little bit later in the podcast, but for the time being, Jesus noted that sexual sins 
with a justified reason for divorce. And um, and we're talking about sins of passion here. This is how he interprets it. And he's going to take a more conservative view. So there has to be justifiable biblical reasons before divorce can take place. So the, this law, there's a background to this. This law was given to regulate what was already occurring in Israel. So this was already happening. But it must be remembered that ancient divorce was extremely difficult on the woman. This is something we have to remember, because the woman was not allowed to divorce the man. Only the man was allowed to divorce the woman in ancient days. Um, this posed problematically problematic for the woman. Now, you know, if there were situations, um, I, I'm, I'm going to, well, anyhow, let me, let me go back and get it back on track. I was, I was running a rabbit trail that's going to get us off course, so let me just avoid that. If she was given over... To, to be divorced, this would have been a public shame and dishonor that she would receive in the community. Deuteronomy 24 holds that a woman should not remarry her previous husband so that she not, does not play off both men, thus becoming an adulteress by cheating on them by pitting one against the other. This may have implication implications to what Jesus is talking about remarriage because he is quoting this passage of Scripture, but he's pointing it back to a higher ideal, not looking at this so much as a contract, but looking at this more as a covenant. And so that if divorce were to happen, it needs to be because of a solid, irreconcilable difference, but he's always trying to seek out reconciliation and forgiveness where that's possible. It's not always possible, but where it's possible, it needs to be sought out. So what was the background behind the debate on divorce in Jesus' day? Okay, so going back to Deuteronomy 24, again, we, we, we talked about how the key of this interpretation was found around the phrase, find, found something indecent about her. What does that mean? Well, the missioner records the following interpretations by three rabbis. Now, we hear of two, but there's actually a third rabbi. So there are three schools of thought. So here's what the here's what the Talmud says. The mission in the Talmud, and I'm, I'm quoting from the Talmud. Beth Shammai say, say, a man should not divorce his wife unless he has found her guilty of some unseemly conduct, as it says, because he hath found some unseemly thing in her. Beth Hillel. Uh, say, say that he may divorce her even if she has merely spoilt his food because it, or burned his biscuits, as some people will say, uh, because it says, because he hath found some unseemly thing in her, you know, he may divorce her for something like that. Now, there's a third interpretation. There's a third rabbi whose name is Akiba. Rabbi Akiba say, he may divorce her, and I say say because this is the way they read it, this is the way it's written. Rabbi Akiba say, sounds kind of like, sounds like Confucius say, but here it is, Rabbi Akiba say, he may dis divorce her even if he finds another woman more beautiful than she is, as it says, it cometh to pass if he finds no favor in his eyes, or if she finds no favor in his eyes. So here you find three very different interpretations. Rabbi Shemai says it needs to be for a justifiable reason. Rabbi Hillel, which was the more popular version, says that you may divorce her if she does anything in the household that's displeasing to you. Rabbi Akiba goes so far to say, well, if you find a newer model, you can divorce her and get the newer model. Now, by far and away, Rabbi Hillel 
was the most favored interpretation of the day. Almost no one took Rabbi Shammai's case. So when they when they bring this to Jesus, now understand here again the the scribes and Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus. They think that he is just nothing more than a hillbilly redneck who doesn't know what he's talking about. So they are shocked to no end when he starts quoting uh, or he starts uh, taking the side of Rabbi Shammai, here again showing the rabbinical training that Jesus had. He knew the Talmud. <laughs> he knew the Scripture. Here again, he's not overriding Scripture. He is he is he is overriding the interpretation of scripture that was right. given in his day. And that's a key thing we need to remember as Jesus is interacting with uh, the scribes and Pharisees. So often to get out of the marriage, uh, so, so what, while the wife could not constitute the divorce, she could become so tormentative <laughs> that she would, according to uh, the Talmud, she could become so tormentative until she basically Got annoys the, the crud out of the yeah. husband to the point that he is willing to get a divorce. So that was the way the woman brought forth the divorce. But in the rabbinic community, Hillel's interpretation was by far and away the most favored position as it was not seen as a covenant. Marriage was not seen as a covenant, but with more of a contractual agreement. Jesus points the rabbinic community back to God's original intentions, and we'll get to that in more detail later in the podcast. But he points behind God's original intentions behind marriage and that marriage would become a safe haven for a husband and wife to love each other, to grow in their relationship with one another, and to provide the foundation for their children's development and educational training. Now here's another key factor we've got to take into consideration. It's the children. You remember God's commandment to Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply the earth. Be fruitful and multiply the earth. Deuteronomy 6, we find the greatest commandment, which says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then afterwards, he talks about training up your children in the ways of the Lord. Okay? Right. So the family unit, a, when a family unit is a good, safe haven for everyone involved, that is God's ideal for the family, that it will be a safe haven for individuals to grow and love one another and to, to build one another up in, in a true agape form of love, which is supposed to be what the family is all about. Does it always happen? Well, because of our sinful nature, it doesn't. But that's God's ideal. That's God's plan behind the family. Right. right. And the family... Um the family unit is 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 made or built to stabilize a culture and a uh, a community so that it could flourish uh it, together uh and, Absolutely. and I think that's i think that's that's probably you know one of the bigger things to look at why why families were you know um so focused upon i mean you know it's 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 amazing when you look back at how uh ancient cultures and not even too far back from from where we are today, um, 50 years ago, um, how family and uh, uh, how family was looked at compared to what it is today. Uh, I, I it, agree. It truly, yeah, it, it's only in the past 50 years or so that it's actually, <laughs> you could say, gone off the rails. Um, 
<laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I, I, in fact, I, have you ever seen the movie Courageous about the police officers, oh, yeah. a Christian movie? Oh, yeah. That's the, a good show. There's a line in that movie that resonates with me to this day where the officer said that if if parents did their job in the homes, that, right. uh, that, that these kids would not go to gangs. I, I can't remember exactly how he words it, but he says these right. gangs wouldn't be a problem because they would find, if, if parents did their job in the homes, that they wouldn't have to deal with the stuff they did on the streets, meaning that kids would not go looking for family in gangs and things of this nature. Right. I actually asked a, a real life police officer who works in a in a very difficult part of a of an urban uh, neighborhood in our in our area if that's true. He said not only is that true. He said he's been saying it before even the movie came out. He said that uh, a lot of these kids joining gangs they're looking for a father they never knew. They're looking for a safe haven that they never knew, and they're looking in the wrong places to find that family. Yeah, they're looking for purpose and meaning and and uh, some sense of belonging and and all of that and and some sense of structure. Uh, you know, boys looking for um, their dad to rise up and to teach them Absolutely. proper things, and the girls to girls rising up to to have their mothers teach them the proper things. And and that's scriptural. That that's that's actually scriptural of telling us what what to do with our children and that's i guess that's that's really kind of a, a core uh to it so you know obviously having a divorce uh potentially leaves um leaves the kids in a uh vulnerable spot it's a precarious situation um right b- because they you know now having said that let me preface this comment by saying that there are many godly Christians who've been remarried, who who's, who have come together with their kids, and have really made it work. But sure. I, I've known other cases where they didn't invoke God, and God wasn't brought in the situation, where it became more problematic. Um, so, so, so I, I want to say this preface because of the fact that I know some people who who came up with a stepdad who or a stepmother who quite honestly said that they were more apparent to them than their biological mother or father was. Um, mm-hmm. Did it have to be that way? Well, if the parents stepped up and did what they were supposed to do and, and, and it were able to make it work, then it would have been a, a, good, a good thing. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't always happen that way. But... Um, we need to strive to build strong families and strong marriages because I think you're right. The cornerstone of any healthy society is found in healthy families. Right. So, in Jesus' teaching on divorce, what constitutes the exception clause that he provides? So, Jesus uses one word, pornea. Okay. We, we get our word pornography or porn from this. Uh, porn, porn, pornea means sexual sins. Graphe means written. So pornography means written uh, sexual images or, or sexuality written down or, or, or uh, documented or some sort like that. So pornea refers to a host of sexual sins. 
And, I, and you'll hear sometimes people will say, well, it can only mean uh, for fornication or it can only mean for adultery. Well, actually, it, it has a wide range of meaning. It can mean adultery. It can mean discovery of incest. So say two people were married and they later find out that they uh, were were uh, brother and sister, didn't realize it because of a broken home, then obviously that's grounds for divorce there. Bestiality, if they find their partner doing things with animals that they shouldn't be doing, that's cause for divorce. Discovering that the other person uh, is a, it has a, is a, is a leaving them for another person of the same sex, and so on. So uh, it's not singularly aligned, but it's multifaceted. It, there's a whole host of sexual sins that uh, can be included in this. So anyhow, pornea talks about sins of passion. Now here's the interesting thing, though, because in in uh, ancient culture, if a person was caught committing adultery, you know, it was a death sentence. So this is, you know, f- for if if a person was caught someone in adultery by divorcing them, it's actually a lesser charge than the full thing that could happen, which would have been um, a death penalty in ancient cultures. You know, we don't have that today. Except for in some, you know, far cultures, but uh, nonetheless, um, that's grounds for divorce, according to what Jesus said. Mm-hmm. So, the does the Bible permit remarriage after divorce? So here is one of the real sticky situations. So if you go back and read Jesus' statement in Matthew nineteen, and maybe we just need to do that. Let me pull this up right quick. Uh, let me read this. This is going to be, I am in uh, the Christian Standard Bible here. Uh, let me pull this up, Matthew 19. Okay, and he said, okay, um, let me find it. Okay, okay, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, pornea, and marries another commits adultery. Okay, so many will see that last point and say, well, remarriage is never acceptable. Well, understand now something. In the Greek text, all of this is one big sentence. Okay, so the exception clause, so, so basically what he says, whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery. But that's the full complete sentence. But there's this exception clause placed in there, except for sexual immorality. So if sexual immorality is a just cause for divorce, then as Arnold Fruchtenbaum you know, notes in his uh, big, massive, multi-volume series called Yeshua, called Yeshua, uh, the life of Messiah from a Messianic Jewish perspective, as he states, then then it is expected that remarriage should happen. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, here again, Jesus is giving a commentary on Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 provides that, uh, that uh, ability for remarriage to occur. Okay, so... Um, but um, so again, Fruitenbaum says the remarriage principle remains the same. A valid biblical divorce automatically allows for a remarriage. So again, we must note the emphasis that Jesus provides on forgiveness and reconciliation where possible. However, that's not always possible. But also notice that Paul says to the unmarried and widows 
It is good for them to remain as I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So the same is true for individuals who've been divorced for biblical reasons. Uh, And I also think about uh, two or three uh, individuals in my own personal life who have helped shape my views on on, uh, this issue. I remember... um, Wayne Trexler, I was looking up here at uh, my um, ordination, and I, yep, here's his name, second one from the top. Um, Wayne Trexler was a director of missions in our organ, in our association whenever I was ordained. And I spoke with him about this because he had the practice of officiating marriages for people who were previously divorced. And so I asked him about this because I knew this was a hot-button topic. And I never will forget his device that he gave. He said this. He said, Brian, you can choose not to officiate weddings for people who've been divorced. But he said, remember the grace of God. And he said, also, remember this. If if you don't help them in a time of need, don't expect them to come to your church. And I really thought about that. Because if you're not going to minister to them in their time of need, don't expect them to come to your church, attend your church, at, you know, and, and, and come to you for, for any other spiritual issues that may take place. And he gave me his reasoning for believing why divorce and remarriage was, was acceptable. I also remember another guy who was very influential in the formation of my ministry, and that was Gilmer Denny. Gilmer Denny was a pastor. He didn't have education like many biblical scholars do. He encouraged me to go get biblical education because uh, I remember he w- he come up in the early 1900s and and he said you know my time it wasn't expected but he said now your time you're going to need it and and that's rung true that's proved true especially with the way culture is going um, and the challenges we're facing but he had a he had a son that he officiated his wedding and um, and he told me that. Uh, he said, you know, my son was in a, is in a marriage he shouldn't have been in. He said they weren't right for one another, and, and they knew it. And he said, my son came to me, and he said he went back to the verse we just read in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. He said, you know, the Bible says it's better to marry than to burn. And he said, you know, I don't think that my, my, my son should have ever married the first person that he was married to. And he said, you know, if God's grace... Is, has forgiven him, and the Bible says it's better for them to marry than to burn, then then um, if God can forgive him, why can't I as well? And there again, that really resonated with me, just the way he phrased that, the way he worded that. And um, mm-hmm. and then also, it, when my grandpa pastored, there was a couple there who had both been divorced and remarried, and you know, some people in, in the area, they, they, they equate that almost with the unpardonable sin, and I got to know this couple, and you know what? They were a good, godly, loving couple. They loved one another. They loved the Lord. They were very active in the church, you know. And it really resonated with me. Again, if God can forgive them, who am I? <laughs> to, and, and they are obviously loving one another. They are obviously they are obviously uh, working hard for the church. If if God can forgive them and use them, uh, who who am I to say otherwise? So. Those are some examples I've had in my personal life, in addition to uh, what I think we find in Scripture um, mm-hmm. there as well. So I want to kind of, and this may be a rabbit trail, I'm not sure, but I want to kind of talk about um, additional on to this question, and it may not fit on this question, 
um, we'll see as it plays out how my question comes out. But I've I've heard teachings. I've heard people teaching on this subject, and when somebody gets divorced and remarried or divorced altogether, um, it also removes them out of the ability for uh, ministry. Um, so, like if a if a pastor, preacher, um, theologian, kind of those kind of things, it removes them uh, out of, or or they should remove themselves out of uh, out of a teaching atmosphere um, or or shepherding over people uh, because they could not quote unquote keep their household um, like in First Timothy and in those. Um, was it First Timothy or Second Timothy? I can't remember. First now. Timothy three. Um, First Timothy, yeah. So where he talks about talks about those things, and, and so it, I guess I guess the question comes is: Does that take a pastor, teacher, um, you know, any of those? Um, does it any of those people? Does it take them out of the ability to continue doing that? just because of divorce. We know that's actually our seventh question, so let's go ahead and just jump into that one because uh, I think this is very important. This is a very important uh, thing for us mm-hmm. to discuss. Um, you know, and, and our sixth question was going, was going to be, let me just briefly hit on this, does the Bible provide other exception clauses? We've already mentioned that. We've already talked about sexual sins, abandonment, abuse, and religious incompatibility, so there's no really need to, to hammer back on that. So let's just jump on in, in this next question. So for this, this is probably going to be the most controversial aspect of this podcast because there are some people who hold strong feelings about this one way or the other. But I am of the persuasion that if the Bible is the Word of God, then we need to properly interpret the Word of God. And sometimes it's not always easy, okay? And sometimes we need to go back to the original language and the historical situations ongoing to understand what was taking place. The same is true here. So, in 1 Timothy 3, um, the passage has received considerable consideration as as Paul provides the qualifications for a pastor and deacon, okay? And this is primarily for pastors and deacons. Paul says, and let's just go ahead and read this again from the CSB, 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 7. An overseer or a pastor, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, now underline that, that's going to be the phrase we're going to come back to. But we need to read the entire statement to understand the gist of what he's saying. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, so not an alcoholic, not not a drunk, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders. Now, hey, 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 do we ever really stress this? 
that we need to have a good reputation not only with people inside the church, we need to have a good reputation with atheists. We have need to have a good reputation with with non-believers uh, mm-hmm. so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. So the main area of focus concerning marriage is actually found in verse 2 where Paul says the husband of one wife. Now here again, it's important right. to note something very critical in understanding this. In the Greek text, all of what we just read is one long mega sentence. It's all one long mega sentence. And it has one primary verb setting off everything else that we just read. And that one primary verb is the word is the Greek word day meaning it is necessary. Okay? Now, here's the thing we have to understand. Tenses in the Greek language, and I'm by far not a Greek expert, but tenses in the Greek language indicate what what sense in which the verb is talking about. In this case, the verb is a present indicative meaning that it's talking about the the case of the present time. So since all of this is one sentence, here's the thing we have to remember, that one verb sets the stage for every single one of these characteristics that we just read. Okay. Notice also Paul never uses the word divorce or remarried or remarried uh, in this in this context. He never uses that. So here's the here's the problem I have. So there, well, let me first of all say there are various interpretations. So there are four main interpretations. One that only married individuals can serve in the pastorate, and and deacons have the same qualifications, with the exception of teaching. Teaching's not a necessity for deacons. But one, only married individuals can serve. Two, only widows can remarry and serve as pastors and deacons. But there, you you you're adding something to scripture because that's not you know that's not clarified there. Three, only married individuals can serve as a pastor and deacon uh, who've only been married one time, or I, we've already said that only once married, and only married individuals can serve. And then fourthly, the phrase speaks of current marital fidelity. The last interpretation, in my opinion, and it's not just mine, it's very many, numerous biblical scholars will agree with me on this. Marital fidelity is what Paul is discussing. The husband of one wife means that a person is not in a polygamous relationship. They don't have five wives. But it's also that the person is faithful to his or her spouse. Because look at the characteristics he's mentioned all throughout this. Respectable, right. hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not but gentle, not quarrelsome. So there are three main reasons why I believe Paul is speaking of marital fidelity. One, Paul never mentions divorce. So to take that position is to add an interpretation that is not necessitated by the text itself. We're essentially adding in an interpretation to the passage of Scripture. Two, the present indicative verb indicates a present tense. Marital faithfulness best fits the flow of the text. Now, here's the real clincher. If you, since there's one main verb setting off this entire sentence, to hold that Paul disallows 
previously divorced individuals would mean that he also disallows individuals who have previously exhibited the characteristics mentioned in the other characteristics as well. That's right. Which means that if you have ever been below reproach, if you've ever been remarried, if you've ever been uncontrolled, if you've never if you've if you've ever been in a case unsensible or unrespectable or un inhospitable, uh, you've never been able to teach, you've it never you, you could have never at any point in your life been an excessive drinker, you could have never been a bully, you could have you could have uh, must have never been angry or, or ungentle uh, you could you could never have been quarrelsome. You could have never been greedy. Um, you could you could uh, never have mismanaged your household. Uh, if that's the case, then nobody be a teacher. No one could serve. Right. <laughs> no right. one. No one. We would not. Not only would we do we have a problem finding individuals to serve as pastors and teachers, teachers now, but if we take that interpretation, I dare right. say we wouldn't be able to find anyone. Who could be a pastor right. or a teacher, and this also yeah. would uh, disallow Paul himself from being a pastor. Because yeah. do you remember what Paul That's did right. when he before he became a convert? He That's was right. he yeah. was gathering up Christians, casting them from their houses, from their homes, and he sought to kill Christians. So if you take that interpretation, that not even Paul himself could be a pastor or a deacon. Mm. It's interesting how just by just by deciphering that um, into you know with the one word setting everything off um, tying it together that's interesting how it changes the outlook of how you read that scripture it sure does um, man yeah because I mean I've heard some I've heard some some pe- some teachers that uh, they hear uh, of so-and-so getting a divorce or had gotten a divorce or what have you, and they say, well, he needs to step down. He needs to move away from the pulpit, and, uh, and he, can, he can serve the church in some sort of way, but, um, but he doesn't have the authority over, over the church anymore because of this, this feature. Well, if that's the case, then just him driving to the church that day and getting angry and having road rage takes him out of the takes him out of the pulpit altogether yeah if that's the case then if you've ever been if you've ever been greedy over money you've ever had a desire to have more money if you've ever been quarrelsome i mean my lord i don't even feel like a christian till i've had my morning cup of coffee uh in the morning i'm as grumpy as an old bear getting up i'm not a morning person (laughs) (laughs) so that would disqualify me you know at the outset so it's, it's funny how we cherry pick, uh, or, or at least some people yeah. cherry pick scripture because they'll they'll focus on that one vague passage of scripture, and then they'll make well, it say it catches your eye. Yeah, they'll make it say all these things that it doesn't say, but they'll completely neglect and forget about the remaining mm-hmm. qualifications. And there again, being in the present indicative tense. Um, if it weren't in the present indicative tense, if it were in another tense that that included pre previous things, then there again, no one would be able to serve ever. Um, 
So here, here's a situation. I think we've done ourselves a disservice because I think that because some people have been remarried, we've automatically castigated them out of these positions, yet placed individuals who may be bullies, who may be greedy in these positions, all because of a misinterpretation of, of three words. Yeah. One yeah. woman, you know, you know, and ultimately, ultimately in, in the Greek text, all it says is a one-woman man or, or yeah, so one wife. Married mul- with, with multiple wives. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about being married, remarried. It doesn't say anything right. about being divorced. That's what it says, a one-woman man. And it's interesting because that's used also in another context. And I don't have the the, the 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 scripture and verse with me right now uh, off the top of my head, but it's used in another sense in another passage of scripture, speaking to wives being faithful to their husbands in the same sense, worded in the same sense. So there again, there's there's ample evidence to suggest that Paul is not talking about remarriage. He is simply talking about marital fidelity. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it would have disqualified Paul too, because I mean, I've I've heard, um, I've heard not only, yeah, I've heard some people say that that Paul potentially or could have been married, um, and and such. Um, you know, that's up to historians and stuff to figure that out. But with just him being, um, just. <laughs> Even being angry or being uh, have you know a malicious intent, um, even while he was a Christian, you know, could have potentially taken him out of his own very own writing. So it's interesting because um, we're, we use or we apply a uh, typical hermeneutic um, skill here, where we let the clear interpret the unclear. Um, but this is actually very clear here in this <laughs> in this point, you know. I think so. I mean, honestly, I don't understand how this ever came to the point. After studying the scripture and especially looking at it in the original language, I don't know how in the world this ever got to the point that we allowed it to uh, refer to people who have been remarried. Um, I really don't. I mean, the only other possibility I think you could find is is maybe where people have been in polygamous relationships in Paul's day, and he's focusing to say that you need to be in a monogamous relationship. That's a possibility. But I still think that it uh, he's talking about faithfulness to one's spouse. And I think it's the New Living Translation that even translates that passage in that very way, being faithful to one's spouse. Well, you see all the way through the Scripture, the Bible, from the very beginning, never uh, commands or, or, you know, says to have multiple wives. It always um, paints that in a negative picture. Oh, plus, sure. it, and it never And it never works out for any of this, any of the, the Bible stories that are involved. I mean, it never works <laughs> out. It always winds up being... You know their heart being pulled away, or, or like in the case of Solomon, he he becomes idolatrous, you know, and and worships all the all the other uh, pagan gods. Um, I mean, the writers and, of days and, of our lives could could have ample uh, material right. to write yes. on just by following these guys in a polygamous relationships. Right, right. I don't. I really don't understand why Hollywood uh, um, 
beats up on Christians and beats up on the Bible so much because there's a lot of good theatrical stories that go on in the scriptures <laughs> that they, they they don't have to remake Dukes of Hazard and they don't have to remake uh, Footloose and they don't have to remake all these other movies. There's plenty of stories in the Bible if they just go after it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, with with it back to my back to my point of of uh, where the Bible never. Um, you know, it never glorifies multiple marriages, and it never condones it. It it it's it's always it always the scripture always gives us um, the raw, the real of what happens with that, but it never prescribes it. Absolutely, and, and you so so you can implicitly pull it out of there, saying every time somebody does this. It steers things in the wrong way. It makes things go the wrong way. And that's what God talks about and points out in there. And when someone stays married all the way through, how, how glorious it is and, and how much more, um, uh, I guess, uh, lifted up or applauded um, it is. Absolutely, and again, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. But as Jesus says, you know, we we live. I mean, that's the ideal. That's what God's intention is. But Jesus is very realistic in saying that we live in a sinful environment. You know, uh, we, we sometimes people don't get married for the right reasons. Sometimes uh, they may be forced into marriage for whatever reason. Sometimes um, you know, different things happen. You know, different things happen. Well, they could have. Yeah, they could have been married before they became Christians. That's another perspective that we need to consider too. You know, you know, you know. and so let's touch on that real quick. I mean, just out of just pull that out of our our heads here and try to try to think this through. You got you got two non Christians getting married, living their life, and one has an encounter with God, turns to Christ, and creates a. A, a environment in the household that may not be pleasant for the person that uh, is not a Christian. So how do we handle that? And this is kind of what Paul says. You know, I, I don't think the believers should pursue a a divorce or separation you know, unless in the in the event that um, you know you can go back to Ezra. We were talking about unless there's a situation where they're not allowed to worship or something like that. That that's an excusable reason uh, or. In in the case of First Corinthians, where the unbeliever abandons the believer because of their 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 convictions, then there again, that's 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 a situation. I mean, I've I've even had experiences, encounters with pastors who've been married. Their wives decided at some point nothing had happened. He'd done nothing wrong. Their wives had just had it with ministry. They no longer wanted to be married to a pastor, and they left. Mm-hmm. They left him because they didn't want to be a pastor's wife any longer, um, and that left him. And some pa- those pastors, a lot of times, not only have they lost their marriage, sometimes they've lost their jobs for for just for serving the Lord. Okay, right. that's where I think sometimes we've got to be careful because you know, and, and sometimes uh, you know we we may be in, in our attempt to be biblical, we may be. Um, what we perceive to be biblical, we may be inhospitable um, 
that doesn't mean that, that that the pastor shouldn't you know should be left on the staff if if that's going to cause greater problems or whatnot. But but still, you know, it kind of makes you wonder sometimes. <laughs> it seems like we Christians treat one another worse than what unbelievers do, and is that really a good witness to the world? I mean, you know, right. just causes one to stop and ponder. Right. Right. So how does, number eight, how does our understanding of the gospel and God's grace shape the way we should approach issues like these? When we seek to understand concepts and passages that are not clear, we need to interpret them by concepts and passages that are very clear. That's the way we need to interpret Scripture. The worst thing we can do is to take one verse out of context and build a whole theological system out of that. Because in, when we do that, we cause, we, we cause, our interpretations cause the Bible to uh, disagree with itself. So, for instance, if, if you were to say that divorce is never permissible, and uh, one could never remarry, then what are you going to do with Deuteronomy 24? What are you going to do with uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, I think we read, where Paul talks about abandonment? You're causing, you're causing the Bible to um, erroneously speak against itself, when it really doesn't if you properly interpret it. So right. there are three passages I think we need to keep in mind as we as we talk through these issues, now ha- have we hammered out all the issues? Of course not. There are many more things that we could discuss and go yeah, through. Yeah, this this is a this is a multifaceted absolutely conversation that that you know intersects this this is this is where uh, our 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 culture of today where we talk about intersectionality where where things just intersect with other people and other things this is actually really where um it actually does apply to life you know sure um yeah absolutely so so three passages of scripture really stand out in my mind as we yeah. as we think about this and there are probably multiple others and Curtis you may have more that you want to bring out but these are the three that came to my mind first of all we go to first Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 9 through 11, and I'm going to read from the New American Standard uh, Bible in these two passages. And, and the third, I'm just going to reference uh, the discussion. I, well, actually, I think I do have a quote. It's also from the New American Standard. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian believers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Guess the list. But listen to the following words. Such were some of you. (laughs) Right. And that list... All of that list, he said, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. This means, very clearly, a previous sin committed does not counteract and does not overrule the grace of God given to us. Secondly, consider this wonderful passage. We read it at the outset of the podcast, and for good reason. Ephesians 2, 8-10. through 10. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. This means a masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are not saved by our works. Our past does not define us. As children of God, we are characterized by the free gift of God's sanctifying grace, justifying grace, glorifying grace given to us. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And this leads us to our last, third, and final passage to consider. That's Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Now, Curtis, if you need more information, if a person out there listening to this needs more information than this, then I don't know what to give them. Think about his interaction with the woman at the well. During their conversation, Jesus said to her, in John four eighteen, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This which you have said is true. And then she follows by saying, I perceive that you were a prophet. Well, you think? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's just told you your whole life history. Yet Jesus went out of his way off the trail to find this woman where she was. And Curtis, you know what he did? He used this woman who had been five times divorced, living with a man, and used this woman to bring an entire community to faith. Right. Yeah, she was actually, she was, you could almost say she was the first evangelist. Yeah. She was a female. (laughs) So there goes to the whole, well, I wouldn't get into that subject. Well, yeah, let's let's, let's take one controversial topic in hand. (laughs) (laughs) Won't get into that one. But yeah, think about that. She she's the first first Dagum evangelist that 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 he you know that went out and actually brought a whole community to Jesus. And she again again I, I've got to reiterate this. She hadn't been divorced just two times. She'd been divorced five times and was living with a man. I mean, right. there is no yeah yeah. So. Jesus used her, the absolute most unlikely person, and she's a Samaritan on top of all things. Jews mm-hmm. didn't talk to Samaritans. She was a woman. Jews didn't talk. Jewish men didn't talk to women out in public. He used her five times. In fact, many interpreters believe that she came out to the well afterwards because she was so disdained by the community that no, not even the women wanted to associate with her. Uh, everybody came and got their water first, and then after after everyone had finished, then she would come out after everyone had finished when she was just by herself. And that's why she was so, sho- so shocked, as were the disciples, that Jesus came talking with her. If Jesus can use a person like this, then what does it say for a person who maybe they were abused, maybe they found another relationship? What does it say about that person? Could God not use such a one for his glory and honor. Right. So it seems to right. me that uh, we Christians sometimes have a difficult time forgiving and um, seeing things the way Jesus right. did, and right. myself included. One other, before we get into the last question, one other topic I do want to touch on is um, 
we we focus as as Christians today, as modern American Christians today, as you know. Well, if you get divorced, you need to get remarried, or you need to be married. But what about those that decide to remain celibate and and single after they've gotten divorced? It, what is what does the Bible say about that? Actually, Paul says that is actually the very best thing you can do. But not everybody's capable of doing that. Paul right. says if you can live a life of singleness and be completely devoted to the Lord, that's that's the best of possible. That's not to demerit marriage because God calls us to be married and go forth and multiply the world. But that's right. but if you're talking about serving the Lord, you know, if you could if you could remain single and be fully devoted to the Lord, that's the best as far as service to the Lord. That's the very best possibility. So it may be that some people out there have been divorced or widowed. They have no desire to be married. You don't have to find, and this is a great lie that we've that many women especially have been given in a modern culture. Many people say that you have to be married to be happy. That's a bald faced okay. lie. You don't need another person to be happy. You do need the sovereign God in your heart, and He provides happiness right. in, in a in sense. Him that, is, right in Him is fullness of joy. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things that I that I do want to just I, I wanted to kind of just bring out and bring to the surface because we focus so much on we even tell our kids you know go out and get married or when you get married we focus a lot on that but we don't ever focus on the singleness and the ability to serve the body of Christ as a single person and what kind of joy that actually brings to their heart, not only to their heart, but also to others and, and their ability to actually, you know, when you think about it, I mean, being married and having children, um, yeah, you are you are bound to those things. You have to then provide for those. You have to then, where if you think of, um, you know, a single person, um, they have the ability or, or capabilities of being able to just jump and go and go help, go do things. And I think you bring up a wonderful point there, Curtis, because I think we do place um, a lot of pressure on people to get married. So, for instance, um, I, was, I was later in life by the time I got married. Uh, my, my wife and I were older by the time we got married. We tried to have children. We had two miscarriages, which happen when you try to have ki- children a little later in life. But uh, we had two miscarriages and were eventually blessed to have my son. Um, but having said that, I felt a lot of pressure by people who consistently asked me, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? And I said, well, help me find the right person, and maybe I'll talk about it. <laughs> But there was a lot of pressure being placed to get married. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that might be even be some of the reason why some people get married at such a young age, but they don't they don't pursue the person that God has for them. rather they 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 just try to get people off their back, maybe. And, and I think sometimes that might be the reason why some people get in the wrong relationships because they feel such a pressure to get married. And don't find the fulfillment found in Christ, even being a single. I, th- I think honestly, better marriages come about whenever both people find their find their fullness in Christ and are able to uh, come together in in the fullness of God, um, coming together as one in Christ. Right. Yeah, that's good. So, 
All in all, what was Jesus's primary message in the Gospel of Matthew relating to marriage? So the most important message, and Curtis, I think you've done a good job bringing us back to this as we've gone through this this topic. The most important message is that God ordained God ordained the marriage relationship so that a husband and wife could love and support each other and create a safe haven to provide the foundation for their children's upbringing, both spiritually, uh, mentally, and physically, or all three. But because of our sin, divorce is sometimes inevitable. But divorce does not mean that a person must live alone for the rest of their lives if they feel so inclined to, to remarry. Some people may not. But neither does divorce mean that one becomes a less valued person to God and His kingdom. By God's grace, we are saved. We are used for His glory, and by His grace we are allowed to bring a blessing to others. Divorce is not, friends, if you, do, if you don't hear anything else I, I say, please hear this. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If God has saved you, He has forgiven you, He has washed you clean from all your sins. And that's something we can all cherish and, and celebrate because of a wonderful, loving God, a God that which nothing greater could be conceived. Right. Yeah. Embrace the grace. Embrace the grace. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And we just, we really got to focus on Jesus here. I mean, um, if we're married, let our family glorify Christ in everything we do. If we're not married, then let our lives glorify Christ in everything that we do. Um, nothing changes. So, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, your the tools that you have in front of you, um, you know, get to work. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that was a good uh, good podcast there, Brian, and I really enjoyed uh, going through it. Um, I'm expecting some correspondence. I'm sure we will probably get some. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll have another Q and A uh, podcast sometime soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know yeah, what we so. need? We need to be able to discuss these things biblically and spiritually, yeah. and be able to to yeah. look for the the true meaning in, in Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think what it does is it it also. Um, takes the scariness away uh from from um biblical interpretation but it also um helps somebody be reassured if something like that did happen if they did get divorced and and on they're frustrated or they're they they they've um kind of been in a in a position where they can't uh they don't know what to do um this this may help them understand this a little better and, and may i add one more thing here i would say to people if you're in a church that's looking down on you as a second class citizen because of your past then it might be time to find another church um and it might be time to find another congregation of loving uh bible believing christians who are willing to uplift you and who are willing to uh to, to build you up in the Lord. If, if, you're being, if you're being castigated as a second-class citizen because of something in your past, then, then, then you don't need to be at that place. Okay. God's grace and mercy. Amen. Well, we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending your time together with us, and we value that time. 
Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith to strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Frisky Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Gold so on, friends. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. This is Brian Chilton for the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your Night Sky Report, where we provide you information about the night sky in hopes that you'll go out and observe the beauty of God's creation. Tonight we provide our report for September 2021. September is a month that hosts all but one planet in the night sky. With cooler weather and lower humidity, the month affords some tremendous sights for stargazing. Venus and Mercury rise higher in the night sky towards the first of the month. Venus can be seen at dusk in the southwestern sky with Mercury to its lower right. Around September 8th, Mercury will be seen near the thin crescent moon. On September 9th, the young moon will stand to the right of Venus before forming an amazing alignment on the 19th. On the 19th, from the lowest right to the highest left, you will be able to find Mercury, the blue star Spica, Venus, and the crescent moon. This will be an amazing sight to behold. On September 16th, the moon floats by Saturn before hovering below Jupiter on the 17th. September 22nd brings about the autumnal equinox at 321 a.m., which officially ushers in the fall season in the northern hemisphere and the spring season in the southern hemisphere. The harvest moon appears on September 20th, just two days before the autumnal equinox. Finally, the constellation Pegasus and the great square asterism are viewable in the southeastern sky. You can also find stargazing apps to help you identify all other planets with the exception of one during the month of September. Be watching for these amazing events throughout the month and as always, this is Brian Chilton for the Bellator Christie Podcast, encouraging you to go out and enjoy the beauty of God's creation while giving Him praise. As always, keep looking up.